0: Coming to you from hometown America, the land of the free and the home of the brave in Bedford, Virginia. Welcome to Cop Talk. I'm Captain Robert Kimbrell.
1: I'm Sergeant Joe Dooley.
0: To our friends and family from the University of Virginia and the University of Idaho, we want you to know that uh, all of you are in our thoughts and prayers. And we definitely wanted to start today's Cop Talk off by uh, mentioning that and and letting you know that you have 100 support of uh, Bedford and the Bedford Police Department. Well, folks, decorative lights are going up, and the music's on, and the radio's changing, and there's a sense of excitement in there. The holiday season is here, and you probably have a list of people you want to show appreciation for. Finding the perfect gift is a, is a great feeling, and you know, it's an even better feeling when it's a surprise. However, thieves are running everywhere and running everything and t- trying to ruin things, us. So the United States Postal Service has blue collection boxes all over to make sending your mail easy. However, we have some tips for you when using those blue postal boxes or really any box of any carrier service. Remember that crooks don't take time off for the holidays. The United States Postal Service is actually warding against using the blue mailboxes for the next few months. Thieves are using the internet and social media to plan coordinated attacks on the collection boxes. Thieves target mailboxes, and after that, they, you know, they are actually targeting them during the last collection of the day or during Sundays and federal holidays. They're still in mail containing checks, gifts, and any, anything else that they can actually get their hands on. So, Joe, what do you think pe- people can actually do to uh, reduce their chance of being victimized by this?
1: Well, you can still use the Postal Service to do the following. There is a schedule of collection times on the front of the blue mailboxes. Ensuring your mail is in the box before the last collection so it doesn't sit in the mailbox all night long Uh, hand your mail directly to the postal carrier that's always (laughs) one of the best options take your mail directly to the post office and go inside to the counter use the wall drop slot at the post office for any after hours drops and whichever method you choose by all means do not send any cash
0: you know those are great tips joe what should folks do if they see someone going into a collection box during non-postal hours
1: Well, the first thing they should do is contact their local police or sheriff's department so they can respond and possibly catch the thief (coughs) in the act. After um, contacting their local law enforcement, people should notify the United States Postal Inspection Service. And the number for the inspection service is 1-877-876-2455. Again, that number is 1-877-876-2455.
0: And Joe, if, you know, that wasn't bad enough, we have some more bad news for folks. Uh, While we were on the topic of mail, it's going to cost you more to send mail in 2023. The United States Postal Service is actually raising prices on stamps starting in January 2023. Joe, can you give a little bit of a breakdown of what folks can expect?
1: Sure. The letter rate will increase from $0.60 until (coughs) $0.63, so that's a $0.03 increase. Metered letters will increase from $0.57 to $0.60, so that's another $0.03 increase. And domestic postcards will go up from 40 to $0.48 total.
0: Wow, so an $0.08 increase on that. Joe, what about international mail? Will that be going up too?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, both international postcards and international letters will increase $0.05. They are currently (laughs) $1.40, and that will increase to $1.45 in the new year.
0: Well, Joe, that's a great breakdown of these increases. Um, I'm sure folks will find it very helpful. And, you know, another thing that folks are actually going to find helpful is that we have a very special guest joining us today, Mr. Bart Warner, who is the town manager for the town of Bedford, Virginia. We definitely thank you, sir, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. Welcome to Cop Talk, Mr. Warner.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with uh, both you and Joe today.
0: Appreciate you, sir. And, you know, we'd like to hear a little bit about the scheduled town border adjustments that we've been hearing so much about. I'm told that the subject (laughs) of town border adjustments is not anything new, Uh, How long ago did this process start, and is there a reason why some folks may not be aware of them? Certainly. Well, let me give a little
2: bit of background on kind of the nature of local government in Virginia. try to do so in a way that's not terribly boring, but for those who are not aware, the structure of local government in Virginia is different. We have counties, which are administrative units of the state. Nothing unusual about that. And we have towns which exist to provide specific services that their citizens and charters reflect and want them to provide. Cities in Virginia are independent. They're not parts of the counties and they're not towns. There's something in between. They're kind of entrepreneurial in that they do provide services that are driven by their citizens and charters. But they are also subunits of the state themselves the questions of boundary adjustments, commonly known as annexations, is also a little more complicated by that status. When a town increases its boundaries, there's really no harm done to any other local government. county doesn't lose any territory, simply put. However, when independent cities would expand, those were done at the expense of The counties that were adjacent to them. So in the mid-1980s, the General Assembly did a study led by the Grayson Commission that basically led to a recommendation that limited the abilities of cities to annex territory. And frankly, with very rare exceptions, cities in Virginia are not allowed to annex territory or adjust their boundaries. So That's relevant to us because from 1968 through 2013, we were one of those independent cities, which led to all kinds of fun discussions about our relationship to the county and our role with them. So one of the first discussions in the negotiations for us to become a town again related to our plans to expand. Because again, towns can annex. They can also do so by means of what's called an involuntary annexation. There are certain rules that spell out how that goes about, but if you meet those criteria, any town can add territory that's adjacent to its existing boundary without input from those citizens. Knowing that was one possibility, both the city then and the county came to the table to talk about what that might look like. And as part of the reversion agreement, the town, as we became gave up its right to annex for 15 years, but we defined certain phases where that would take place in conjunction with our reversion. The first phase, and not many people know this, occurred simultaneous with the reversion in 2013, and we took in the areas mainly along 460 that were revenue-sharing areas with the county. I can speak more to that if anybody wants to know about it, but mainly Walmart on the east and then on the west side where Super 8 and other beyond that were. Those were actually parts of the county, but we had received revenue from them based on a pretty creative agreement previously. And since that was already happening, those came into town immediately. And at that point, we took in about 310 new residents along with several businesses. Part of the agreement said that immediately, well, not immediately, automatically 10 years after the agreement took effect in 2013, that there would be a second phase of boundary adjustment. And that was agreed upon back around 2013, which is almost 10 years ago. And given that timeframe, unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, A lot of folks aren't aware of that. Obviously, people move in and out. Some of the new residents of those areas probably aren't even aware that that agreement was in place. Uh, So one of the things we're going to be doing within the next month or so is we're going to be sending letters to everyone in these areas that will be coming in, explaining that they will be town residents as of July 1, 2023, and also explaining some of the services and details of that. So... I'm sorry. That's a very long-winded introduction to the topic. I don't know you got other questions, but it it's all kind of simple and complex at the same time.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that I want to interject on that <coughs> is, you know, that uh, taking in that Walmart. Everybody I've I've ever talked to, I've gone to <coughs> classes all over the country, and and there's one thing that is consistent, and that's that. You know, there always seems to be a, a red dot on, on the heat maps where the Walmart's at. And that's because so much stuff happens at Walmart. You know, normally it draws so many people from all over the county that it sits in. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Joe, it, as a matter of fact, Joe and I were at the school I'm talking about in North Carolina. Right. we in DDAX, mm-hmm. where everybody was talking about that. You know, we're, DDAX is, uses heat maps and, as part of the uh, the process. And, and uh, you could tell where everyone's Walmarts were at because there was a red dot yeah, in that it's area. Always
1: the, it's always the hottest spot in the in the picture yeah you know but on
0: the other hand yeah, you know, on the other side of that walmart's such a great partner for us you oh, know yeah. Yeah, it has no,
1: nothing to do with the facility yeah it's just
0: the nature of the beach it just them. draws so many people
2: oh and even the the detractors of walmart mm-hmm. will admit that they go there at least three or four times a
0: week yeah mm-hmm. absolutely so we really enjoy having them <laughs> so, here, do I. so partner. It, it all evens out yep <laughs> absolutely <laughs>
1: I've always found it interesting how sections of neighborhoods like those past the hospital are in the County and sections in the same neighborhood are in the town. And in some instances, maybe the same property has a boundary. Uh, but the roads leading into all these sections are in the town. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, that's a great observation, Joe. And one thing I'll point out is that other than those of us who have to pay attention to boundary lines, I think, um, most citizens and our neighbors don't really give much thought to thought to them. In fact, when I just pointed out that Walmart came into town in 2013, most people probably just assumed that it was already there. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about Bedford, there's just, we, we all know what we're talking about, which may or may not correspond to lines on a map. So right. that's, that's one complication of, of my job mm-hmm. moving forward. <clears throat> the other thing is the way development happens, and the way communities grow. Um, It's kind of organic in a way. You know, when folks uh, see a lovely area, they want to be there, they want to live there, they want to develop it and have other services. That just happens based on economics and geography and several other things that have nothing to do with the government. However, usually they're attached to another community that provides some services. And generally speaking, in that process, some some communities will provide infrastructure like water and sewer to allow that to happen, and and that's what happened in Bedford prior to this general assembly action in the mid nineteen eighties. Um, specifically, there, there's the neighborhoods we identify as North Hills mm-hmm. in Town and Country. North Hills is the area back behind the hospital, right. <clears throat> Then going up 43, there's also a neighborhood that kind of spans the current town limits off of Boone Drive, High mm-hmm. Right. State. Town and country also is kind of in the southwestern quadrant mm-hmm. of the town. Both of those were obviously developed with what was then city infrastructure, mainly water lines, mm-hmm. which kind of is a tell that it was always intended that they would be part of the community of Bedford formally represented then as the city of Bedford. Right. Again, I'm thinking that the regulatory change in the 80s probably nipped that mm-hmm. and it wasn't too much of a, an issue for anybody because frankly, I think the city had other issues and was focused within. But that's why in these cases you you have na- whole areas and neighborhoods that were developed on the edge of the community that have no other access. And so a lot of the lines that we drew in 2013 for the sake of discussion were fairly arbitrary. Hmm. And we've addressed that. In fact, um, council most recently kind of backed off on the boundaries that were originally agreed upon because we determined that, a, for instance, a power line was used for one of the boundaries, which kind of ran through people's backyards and provided very little access from the front and from a service provision standard, we determined that doesn't make a lot of sense for anybody. Right. So we've adjusted particularly the northern boundary to remove some areas that were originally included on the map. But for those other neighborhoods where you really can't physically access them mm-hmm. without otherwise <clears throat> coming through what's now the town, mm-hmm. there is a logical argument that it makes sense for us to bring those people in and provide them those services in addition to the access that we've been providing for probably 30 or 40 years now.
1: Right. Yeah, the only specifics that I really heard about the boundaries from individuals was if it directly affected them in some way, like you were right. saying, or if something changed on the aspect of, you know, we people around here hunting, shooting uh, in the county, and then when we encompass some of the areas that were the county, the town ordinance prohibits that. So they were it, – it took a little bit of a transition period, but everybody – was able to, to understand, and, and they were all more than cooperative and and understanding and as, the aspect of that.
2: Yeah, and, of course, one of the main things we hear about is the fact of uh, revenue collection. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the town provides a very different level of services compared to the county. No complaints at all about the level of service the county provides. In fact, I think they do a really great job. But, you know, pr- particularly in your realm, the town police add a great benefit to citizens that probably most folks don't think about. And the metrics there are associated with response times. Right. Uh, Sheriff's office does a great job, but they're also responsible for 700 square miles. Mm-hmm. The fact that we can focus on the seven or so square miles means that if you have an emergency and you really need us, we can logistically get there faster.
1: Right.
2: Um, of course, that road maintenance we've talked about, um, you know that point of access issue is is relevant for a lot of folks. Um, I, I've heard the argument made that basically the city residents have kind of been subsidizing the access for those neighborhoods for years, so it makes sense to kind of recover some of those costs. But in any event, from my perspective, we're here to provide services that have value. Those services come at a cost, so a lot of the feedback we hear from the future residents is. The fact that they're going to be paying additional taxes.
1: Right. That's always a hot button issue for anybody.
2: And some of the taxes we collect are the exact same sources as the county, Mm -hmm. notably real estate tax and personal property. Mm -hmm. What's logical about that, though, is so many of the services we provide are related to supporting people's property, protecting their property, and things of that like. So. While we both charge a real estate tax, the town's rate currently is 31 cents per $100 in valuation. Our personal property tax, which most folks are aware of because that's a really hot topic currently, is significantly lower. So the term I've heard used is double tax. And it's correct that we both collect some of the same taxes, but the way we do it is very different. And my perspective is we take a lot less of your dollar compared to what you pay otherwise mm-hmm. but we provide a really good level of service
1: right it. yeah i agree
0: yeah i know one of the things that uh you know was a major benefit for me um as far as you know moving into a town because i spent a short time in the county um was the uh, actual you know trash pickup because um over there i was actually lugging trash over to the dumpster site you know, and, uh, and throwing it away that way, or, or you'd have to contract with a, a company uh, if you could get them to come to your actual house to, you know, take that away. So that's one of the services I definitely enjoyed, um, as well, as far as that goes. Um, so just to clarify, who has the actual authority to execute a boundary adjustment?
2: In our case, it's done by contract. And that goes back to the agreement that we signed with the County when we reverted, uh, In that contract, it says specifically that 10 years after the effective date of reversion, the town has the right to pass an ordinance prior to July 1, 2023 to take in all of the phase two boundary adjustment. That will be executed by the town council, and the town council has indicated that they are going to do that.
1: Talking about town council, how do the changes as far as the uh, reversion affect Uh, council elections?
2: That is an excellent point and an excellent question. Given the change in population related to this adjustment, and the threshold there is 5%, there are certain requirements that all municipalities have to go through to make sure that the new citizens have all the rights and services of everybody else within the community. Basically, the rule is if your population increases by a figure of 5% or more, you have to have a special election huh. whereby all council seats are kind of up for grabs. In our case, we're estimating that our new population will go up from about 6,500 currently to 8,000. Obviously, that's over 5%.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, in November of 2023, there will be a special election. I'm sorry. No, that is right. 2023. It's next right. Year. In which all seven existing town council seats will be up for election or re-election. And based on the results of that, this gets a little complicated, so bear with me. <laughs> the top three vote-getters in that election will receive the remainder of a four-year term for the seats that we just filled in the election last week. Okay. The next four vote getters will receive the remainder of what is currently a two year term. No, I'm sorry, I have that backwards. See, I told you it's complicated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the top four getters, the top four vote getters next year will basically get a three year term on council. Mm-hmm. The next four will get a one year term. Okay uh we just had an election where three members were elected mm-hmm. to a four year term but basically they're back up again next year so right we yeah. had an election last week for three members we will have an election next year for all seven mm-hmm. then we're going to have another election in 2024 for four members
1: right and that's where that one year for the bottom four takes place and those seats are up but that that sets you back into a new rotation Correct. Of every everything, two years.
2: Everything gets reset.
1: Right. After so you got your midterms and your primary. Yeah. So.
2: Now, it's important to know, too, that typically the filing deadline to run for council is somewhere in June. Mm-hmm. We're talking to uh, Barbara Gunner at the elections office about how that works for the people who would be taken in in July. But she assures me that since there's a special election, any new residents who want to run for council will be eligible to do so. And the starting date for that filing will also be the same for everybody. So just.
1: <laughs> yeah, if they anticipate that they're going to be a new resident, and they want to run for council, they can go ahead and apply. That's
2: That'd... correct. And they should contact Miss Gunter at the voter registrar's office for information about that.
0: I hope she's okay with me saying that. Obviously. I'm sure she <laughs> is. Well, that's excellent. Uh, you know, is there anything else that we missed? Because that's pretty much all the questions we had for you so that you would want to talk about or feel that was important information for the folks. I guess
2: the main thing is uh, if you want to know whether you are involved in this or not, the short answer is going to be we're going to send a letter probably in December. We'll host meetings as well. We'll we'll post information on our website. But primarily the areas, again, are those neighborhoods we mentioned, North Hills and Town and Country. There's also a, a small subdivision off of Stafford Drive in the south part of town, which, again, is a situation where you can't really get there without coming here. And then also Bison Printing, which is a business located uh, above where Wheelbrader used to be,
0: mm-hmm.
2: is also kind of landlocked. They'll be coming in. Beyond that, basically the boundaries are in the northern part 43, the Little Otter River, and then the railroad on the eastern part. So there's there's a stretch that's proposed to be taken in that runs along 221, which is Forest Road,
1: mm-hmm.
2: from the current boundaries out to the Little Otter River. Okay. But again, we'll we'll post the maps and answer any specific mm-hmm. questions. But um, again, going back to my original comment about the boundaries, um, other than the tax bills that our new neighbors will be receiving and the increased services, you know, really our identity won't change a lot. I mean, we all kind of live and work and worship and go to school together as is. And, right. Uh, We look forward to the participation of the new folks. If they want to run for council, we've got numerous other opportunities for service, uh, Mm -hmm. various appointed commissions and authorities. So uh, it's not a thing where we're hurting for money. Actually, the town right now is in excellent financial shape. So uh, those folks coming in will be joining a very robust and healthy community. It's, It's not a land grab. I mean, really, we're just excited to, to incorporate these folks and, and assist them and provide them with all the services from day one as citizens.
0: That's excellent. Now, Woody, how, how are we looking on time over there? We're good still? Woody, we got a few minutes to talk about floods, I guess. All right, cool. Um, so Joe, why don't we start out with talking a little bit about floods on as we continue our national preparedness uh, series on the on letter F now.
1: Sure. Uh, being prepared for floods, uh, failing to evacuate flooded areas, uh, entering flooded waters, or remaining uh, after a flood has passed can result in injury or death. Flooding is the temporary overflow of water on the land that is normally dry. It is the most common natural disaster in the United States.
0: You know, results from rain, snow, coastal storms, storm surge, and overflows of dams and other water systems, I guess, can can do that and and it develops slowly and quickly flash floods can come come on with no warning at all you know Joe I've seen all those uh, videos on TV from out west where mm-hmm. they're just standing in a dry river and all of a sudden here comes the water you know wall of water and it definitely causes a lot of outages disrupts transportation damages buildings and creates landslides as well
1: yeah you know, some of the points to remember if you're uh under a flood warning uh find safe shelter right away uh do not walk swim or drive through flooded waters Uh, determine your best protection based on the type of flooding. Stay off bridges over fast-moving water. Evacuate if told to do so, and do so early. Move to high ground or on higher floor if you're in a dwelling, and stay where you are.
0: You know, part of our series, we always talk about how to prepare beforehand. So some of the preparation you can take is you can visit the FEMA site at uh, FEMA.gov, that's F-E-M-A dot uh, you can also sign up to your community's warning system. You know, the Emergency Alert System, EAS, and National Oceanic Administration. Admi- 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 How do you say it, Joe? Atmospheric, Atmospheric Administration. Atmospheric Administration. That's another one of those tongue, tw- tongue twisters for me, um, Or which is, you know, NOAA radio, folks. NOAA radio out there also provides emergency alerts. We have what here, Joe? Uh, Everbridge? Yes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That they can sign up for. Uh, if flash flooding is a risk in your location, monitor your potential signs such as, you know, heavy rain. Learn and practice evacuation routes, shelter plans, and flash flood response. Gather supplies in case you have to leave immediately or if services are cut off. Keep in mind, however, that each person's specific needs, including medication, uh, and also for the, your pets. You know, never forget your pets. Also obtain extra batteries and charging devices for phones and other critical equipment. You know, it's, it's not good enough, Joe, to have your cell phone if you don't have any way to charge it, right? Yeah, that's right. And... Uh, you know, I had some trouble with that actually in Dallas, uh, getting some stuff charged up. So always obtain flood insurance if you, you know, think you're going to need it and do so, so before any of these things occur. Because like Joe and I talked about last week, if there's a named storm out there, then they are not going to uh, issue any insurance at that time. So you want to plan early and, and get that uh, flood insurance and other insurance coverage that you may need prior to any named storm being uh, in effect. And also make sure that you keep your documents in a waterproof container. Create password-protected digital copies of those documents as well. And lastly, protect your property. Move value items uh, to higher levels. Declutter drains and gutters, and install check valves. Consider a sump pump with a battery as well. Uh, we had so much of those problems down in Hurricane Isabel. You know when we went through that. And uh, folks just didn't expect for it to, to get that high, Joe, and they didn't move anything, and they lost it all. You know, yeah. you had four feet of water in people's, you know, dens and living rooms.
1: Yeah, and we'll move to the next phase. If you should find yourself in a flood warning or, uh, in worst case, in an actual flooding event, uh, some of the steps that you want to make sure you take during the event, uh, depending on where you are and the impact of the warning time and flooding, go to the safe location that you have identified. If you're told to evacuate, do so immediately. Never drive around barricades. Local responders use them to safely direct traffic out of the flooded areas. Listen to EAS, NOAA weather radio, or local alerting systems for current emergency information and instructions. Do not walk, swim, or drive through flooded waters. Turn around, don't drown is the catchphrase that has been registered. Uh, Just six inches of fast-moving water can knock you down and one foot of moving water can sweep your vehicle away. Stay off of bridges over fast-moving water. Uh, fast-moving water can wash bridges away without warning. If your vehicle is trapped in rapidly moving water, stay inside. If water is rising inside the vehicle, seek refuge on the roof. And if trapped in a building, go to its highest level. Do not climb into a closed attic. You may become trapped by rising floodwaters. Go to onto the roof only if necessary to signal for help.
0: And then after the event, folks, make sure that you listen to the authorities for information and instructions. Uh, Like Joe was talking about, avoid driving through any of those uh, areas except in emergencies. Uh, Be aware of snakes and other animals that may be in your house. Uh, Wear heavy gloves and boots during cleanup. And and Joe, one of the things that uh, I experienced during Isabel was exactly that. You know, we were actually in about uh, water almost up to our necks, and we were doing an emergency rescue. um, actually we were pulling a, a John boat behind us, you know, mm-hmm. uh, on a rope. Uh, and as we approached this one house, we were looking at it and, and I was like, man, it, you know, it had a haze to the house. I was like, is, are my glasses fogging up? What, what's going on? Um, and when we got a little bit closer, that haze, it, it, the entire house looked like it was moving. It was all spiders, okay. you know, that had mm-hmm. crawled up onto that house on the wall. And so the entire wall was just covered with spiders getting away from that flood water. So, you know, folks, just be aware that, you know, that kind of stuff can end up inside your house as well, whether it's spiders, snakes, whatever. So be aware of that. Also, avoid waiting in flood water. you know, unless it's emergency. We were actually waiting in the floodwater because we had to, you know, try to effect a uh, an emergency rescue on a, on a lady. Uh, and the, the caveat of that, Joe, is that uh, once we got there, she wasn't under emergency. She called it in that she was having difficulty breathing. And when we got there, she was just upset because her cable TV was off. So we, uh, you know, that was one of those things. So obviously, folks, just tell the truth during these things because you put everybody in danger that's trying to get to you. Uh, but avoid those floodwaters, which can uh, contain dangerous debris and other contaminated substances. Uh, with, with us and Isabel, we were uh, checked out and told that we had been exposed to E. coli uh, that was actually in the water at the time. So there's all sorts of uh, nasty things in the water to so be aware of. Um You know, you also have underground and down power lines that you may not be able to see. So just be aware of that. And always use a generator or other gasoline-powered machinery only outdoors. uh, And, you know, keep those away from your windows so any of those fumes can't get in. And be aware of the risk of of electrocution, folks. You know, do not touch electrical equipment. uh, If it is wet or if you're uh, standing in water, make sure you don't touch it. Uh, It is uh, not definitely... um, not safe to do so at that you know if it's wet so just make sure that you uh you know turn off all the electricity to prevent electrical shock uh, prior to the storm and we Joe we had a, a big problem with that as well you know we had people the, the storm waters were so high during isabel that we had people riding jet skis down the street mm-hmm. you know I can believe it um and you know we were out there with the street closed down where we thought the traffic would come from. And then we heard this motor behind us and it was this guy in a jet ski and he was coming right up to a down power line, you mm-hmm. know? So luckily we were able to uh, stop him before he hit that, uh, that power line. And folks just know that just because it's a down line does not mean that line is dead because we had a person electrocuted thinking that the line was dead. Uh, and, uh, you know, it definitely wasn't, it was still live wire. So just be aware of that Joe. I think uh, what we're going to do is next week, we're probably going to talk a little bit about hurricanes and get to the H's, uh, yeah. which goes right along with these, you know, the topic of floodwaters. So this is a time in our uh, podcast where we always pay tribute to a fallen officer.
1: And this week, we'd like to pay tribute to police officer Trung Thai from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department in Nevada. End of watch Thursday, October 13th, 2022. Police officer Trung Thai was shot and killed while responding to a domestic a disturbance call in the 800 block of East Flamingo Road at about 1 a.m. The subject opened fire from inside his vehicle as Officer Ty and his partner attempted to make contact with him at the intersection of East Flamingo Road and South University Center Drive. Officer Ty and a civilian were both struck by the subject's shots. Officer Ty succumbed to his wounds while he was being transported to a local hospital. The man fled the scene and was apprehended by a police canine approximately three miles away after refusing to exit his vehicle. Officer Tide served with the Las Vegas Metro Police Department for 23 years and was assigned to the South Central Area Command. He is survived by his daughter.
0: And folks, we just want to once again thank our guest speaker Bart Warner, town of uh, town of uh, Bedford, Virginia's town manager. So Bart, thank you very much.
1: Yes, for, sir.
2: Thank you for being thank here. Thank you, guys, and thank you so much for everything else you do.
0: Well, we appreciate you, sir, definitely. And folks, we do this because we love you, and we want you to remember that we're your friends, we're your neighbors, but most of all, we are your police department and we thank you for your support. I'm Captain Robert Kimbrell.
1: I'm Sergeant Joe Dool. be safe.